Welcome to the Emergency Medicine Conversations podcast. I'm Dr. Louise Tuckwell, Senior CMO working in two Southern Regional Hospitals. The aim of this podcast is to review emergency topics with a rural and regional perspective. The opinions expressed are for general education and I encourage everyone to check their local guidelines and those of the New South Wales Emergency Care Institute. I have with me Dr. Can Huynh, a urologist who's working in our region. So thanks for joining me today, Can. I really appreciate it. Thank you, Louise. Um, it's absolutely my pleasure. So we'll start off with a 55-year-old male with the onset of severe left flank pain at rest, radiates to his left groin. There are no precipitating or relieving factors. He has felt nauseated and sweaty and has some microscopic hematuria. Observations are all within the flags. It's very easy to jump to the conclusion of renal colic. Dr. Wynne, what other history would you want to consider or other differential causes in a, a patient such as this? That's a very good question, uh, Louise. I just want to first say off that renal colic has always been called the great mimicker. It can present with all number of symptoms. So really, we have to try and exclude other important uh, or significant diagnoses especially of the vascular system, i.e. the uh, aorta, or a gastrointestinal uh, problem as well. In this case, because there's also the presence of microscopic hematuria, it does tend to lead more towards renal colic. But the typical renal colic patient will have pain, which will sort of go away completely, and it can sometimes rise and go as the term colic is defined. It can also be quite constant and dull in the background as well, with also sudden exacerbations. If you think of renal colic as an actual stone causing blockage of the kidney, patients only really get the pain when the kidney is blocked. And on occasion, the stone will lift off again, and then they get some relief. Important things to, to consider would be whether they have a history of renal stones, because once a person has formed renal stones, then they, they tend to will get recurrences in the future. Occupational history or history of hydration is important. Most people with renal colic would tend to not to be as well hydrated as others. And then there's, of course, we need to consider the other important things which can make renal colic much more of an emergency rather than just a pain issue. Things like fever and especially patients with a functionally solitary kidney. Yes, yes, of course. And I think also just thinking about that the differential, I'm, I'm glad you brought up the vascular causes. And in fact, the Emergency Care Institute advises that an abdominal aortic aneurysm should be considered in any patient age greater than 60 who presents with abdominal, flank or back pain. And a percentage of those can actually have, you know, microscopic hematuria. So that's something that's important. And often, I, you know, if people have the skills, it's, it's a good thing to do a um, point of care ultrasound to check the aorta in these patients. And actually thinking about imaging. So Dr. Wynn, what, what is your approach to imaging these patients if we don't consider that they have, you know, vascular or GI cause? 
Optimally, to diagnose a renal stone, you would need to order a non-contrast CT scan of the kidneys, ureters, and bladder, uh, termed a CTKUB. Excellent. Yeah, so we often um, do that. And when we get our reports, I mean, the sorts of things we sort of are interested in, obviously, that the size of the stone and whether there's any evidence of, you know, obstruction and, as you said, also whether the patient has any symptoms of an infection. So what's your approach to disposition based upon the um, size of the stone and what sort of degree of you know, obstruction would alter your disposition in these patients? Size, but more importantly, position of the stone is very important you can see a stone in the renal pelvis or in the kidney itself. And as I said before, the stone really needs to obstruct the kidney before the patient gets any form of pain. Kidney stones can be quite prevalent amongst the population. So a scan which shows a stone may not necessarily be the real reason why they, they are getting that pain can often be from something else entirely. So for this patient to have these symptoms, the stone that we see must be in a sort of position that is possible to obstruct the kidney, such as in the pelvic ureteric junction, the bit between the kidney and the ureter, or it's actually seen in the ureter itself. Now other indirect signs that we'll look for is actually a swelling of the kidney called hydronephrosis or even inflammatory changes around the kidney such as perinephric stranding. Now going to back the size of the stone, if the stone is within the ureter, then if it's around five millimeters or less, and this is in general, it should be it should have a chance of spontaneous passage of at least 70%, but much more greater clearance in females than males. If it's larger than five millimeters, then the chances of successfully passing that spontaneously will reduce, dependent on where the stone is on the CT. Obviously, if it's more distal or more closer to the bladder, then there's gonna be more chance that it will pass rather than it being more proximal up towards the kidney. And so with these patients, um, particularly the ones with five millimetre or less size stones, we're often advised to you know, see if the pain settles, send the patient home, get them to strain the urine, and then get a repeat CT in a number of weeks. Is that what you would sort of recommend or what sort of time frame of follow-up would you recommend with on follow-up imaging in these patients? So the way that I would look at managing all renal colic patients in emergency would be to look out for all the danger signals or the indicators for admission or for more acute management. So this would, the number one thing would be infection. If they have a temperature and there is a stone causing, possibly causing obstruction, that patient is in acute danger of going to sepsis. The other reason would be that the patient functionally has one kidney 
It may be that the other kidney is atrophic or the patient has a background of chronic renal failure or diabetes. And this would be another reason for possibly admission observation. And third, it would be that the patient needs constant parenteral analgesia and cannot be managed with oral analgesics alone. And with those three indicators, we usually will need to admit the patient. Now, if they don't have any of these three indicators and you manage to control their pain, you are safe enough to discharge them back into the community. And I usually tell them to strain their urine if they find it convenient enough, just through a sieve. So that if they do pass the stone, they should be able to see it in the sieve. And this may be able to save them another trip to a CT scanner. I would prescribe them tamsulosin, which is a medication we normally use to treat BPH in males. But we've also found that this tends to dilate and cause propulsion of the stone down the ureter. And obviously, regular oral analgesics. That's fantastic. And in terms of indications for emergent urinary stenting, what would you include in in that list? That's a good question as well. So going back to my three indicators for admission, it would be the patient with a fever or other symptoms of signs of an infection, uh, a person with renal failure or has one kidney, certainly would need to stent them because if that kidney is obstructed, then that's it. And of course, the patient that's languishing in the ward that cannot really go on to oral analgesics, and we really need, need to stent those patients as well. Great. Oh, that's cleared that up quite a lot. So I thought that's um, what we speak about on a Renal Colleague. And we've got another case, which is not uncommon. So I've got a 75-year-old male with a history of only being able to avoid minimal amounts for the last 12 hours. He's got no known history of prostatic disease, no dysuria prior to the onset, no fevers or vomiting. Dr. Huynh, what other features in the history are important to elicit prior to jumping to the conclusion that he has urinary retention due to BPH and just requires a catheter? Well, the great majority of patients will have some form of progressive lower urinary tract symptoms, that is urinary flow that is gradually becoming slower. They often have intermittency of urination. They often take a while to start voiding, especially in the mornings, and they may dribble uh, towards the end. They may also have the other irritative or storage symptoms of the bladder, such as urinary urgency, frequency, and nocturia. And this would tell you that they do have a sort of a background of slowly progressive uh, bladder outlet obstruction. And this would more point towards acute urinary retention. You mentioned that the patient wasn't febrile. An acute infection of the bladder or of the prostate will cause retention as well. And I also ask whether he's had hematuria because if they are passing little bits of blood or clot, then it's likely that they've had clot retention. And going on from that, it is good to elicit history of previous bladder surgery or bladder tumours that may present with uh, clot hematuria. Great. And uh, if we're considering our other 
main possibility, which would be a neurogenic cause of um, urinary retention. What sort of features on, you know, history and examination would you be looking for there? Well, obviously in the history itself, I'll be looking for back injuries, spinal cord injuries, or major spinal and pelvic surgery, neurological conditions such as MS, Parkinson's disease or motor neuron disease, whether they've had a recent bout of shingles of the lower back. This is quite common to see because it can affect the bladder function as well. They can have a serious debilitating event or even major surgery. This could actually reduce muscle function throughout the body and sometimes will affect the bladder as well. Now, medications can sometimes be the final tipping point for elderly gentlemen. Are there any ones you find are more commonly associated with precipitating urinary retention? Yes, so absolutely. Centrally acting uh, medications used to treat anxiety and depression would tend to cause a slowing down of the bladder muscle called the detrusor muscle. So tricyclic antidepressants often can be a cause. Okay. So before, you know, submitting this man to a neurological examination to, you know, look for neurogenic causes, we decide to relieve his distress and insert an indwelling catheter. Now, what tips do you have for uh, the technique of doing in this in someone who's probably got an enlarged prostate? So before we get to the process of actually inserting a urinary catheter, we need to actually be sure that the patient is in retention and you can easily palpate or percuss the bladder or if you have a ultrasound available you'd be able to detect whether there is um, a large bladder present now if there is a large bladder present then i would as i tell all my trainees that when you insert the catheter you need to use at least if you're anticipating a difficult catheterization with a large prostate I would typically use two tubes of lubricant as opposed to one because the male urethra can hold up to 70 mils of fluid. Wow. And ensure that the lubricant does not escape by holding the glands penis tight. And then I would place a, I'll start with a 16 French catheter mm -hmm. and I'll ensure that it passes all the way to the hilt. And once it gets to the hilt, we should be able to see some flashback of urine. And then as we blow up the catheter balloon, the patient should not be in pain or grimace because if he does do that, it may mean that you've blown up the balloon within the prostatic cavity. And finally, after you've blown up the balloon, you must be able to retract the balloon a certain distance and then it should stop at the bladder neck. Now, as long as you do all these three things, then you would be sure that you've got the catheter in the right place. Okay. And in terms of the angle of insertion, basically perpendicular to the supine body of the patient, is that the, the best angle to be trying to insert the catheter? 
I'd have the patient in a reasonably comfortable position, whether they're completely supine or a little bit elevated. The most important thing to, to do is actually to hold the penis straight out because you only want one straight passageway and there's one natural curve, which is at the bulba urethra. So you only want one curve to manipulate as opposed to more than one curve. So the important thing is to hold the penis straight as you insert the catheter. Great. And which patients do we need to be particularly careful with to ensure that we don't create a false tract or any other complications? Well, typically these patients would have had a history of prostate uh, surgery mm -hmm. or any other sort of endoscopic manipulation because it may be that they have developed a urethral stricture and that would be the reason why you are unable to insert the catheter as opposed to a large prostate. Okay. Now, antibiotics, do we need to give these post-catheter insertion initially or for catheter changes? By definition, urine should be sterile, and I normally do not provide any prophylactic antibiotics when I insert a simple urethral catheter. However, if the catheterization has been difficult and traumatic with hematuria, it would be advisable to start on some simple antibiotics such as trimethoprim. patients in the emergency department, sometimes even four or five days after IDC insertion, very keen for a trial of void. So how long after catheter insertion for retention would you normally advise doing a trial of void? That's a great question, Louise, because it really depends on how distended the bladder was when the catheter was placed. So it's absolutely important to record down what's called the residual volume the amount that immediately drains out of the bladder on insertion of the catheter. This tells you what sort of strength or chronicity the, the bladder, the retention has been. If the residual volume is less than 500 mils, it means that the patient probably has a form of acute retention because the bladder only fills up to about 500 mils. Okay. And you could easily just perform a trial avoid within a week. If you find that the residual volume is over 500 mils, or if indeed it reaches a litre, then you're best to leave the catheter in until four weeks later for a trial avoid because that bladder has been chronically stretched to a litre because a normal bladder would not be able to reach that capacity. A bladder stretched to that extent would have lost its tone and its ability to contract so if you were to take that catheter out too soon, they would go into retention again. Wow, that's a great way of giving that up because we do see that, that happen at times. So in terms of medications, should we be commencing these patients on tamsulosin or an equivalent drug in the emergency department? Absolutely. So if the patient doesn't have any contraindications for possible hypotension, because tamsulosin will 
reduce blood pressure slightly. It is advisable to put them on a form of alpha blocker such as tamsulosin because that would increase their chances of passing their trial avoid. Now, if you're using tamsulosin or even Minipress, you don't need to provide it to them whilst they have the catheter in. They can take it two doses before their trial avoid. Now, if we were looking at someone with a large prostate and somebody who has a long-term history of a large prostate, then another medication, including dutasteride, would be helpful because it would slowly reduce the size of the prostate. Now, that medication would take at least six weeks for some effects to occur and at least three months are for maximum effects to occur. Great. Oh, that's very helpful. And do you have, now we often see patients coming back to the emergency department with issues such as leaking around the catheter or discomfort from the catheter. How do you suggest we manage some of these issues? Again, another good question, because I'm sure you get bombarded by these questions all the time. So a little bit of discomfort around the catheter is quite normal if someone's not had a catheter before. Some men may have a smaller urethral opening than others. And if they're complaining of penile tip pain, then possibly exchange that catheter to a smaller caliber one. If the original insertion wasn't too difficult, would be the right move. Bypassing of the catheter is often either the catheter is not in the correct position or the patient has a lot of bladder spasms. I believe that if the catheter was in the right place and draining all, draining all of the urine from the bladder, there shouldn't be too much urine left in the bladder for the bypassing to occur. Okay. And if, for instance, a patient had hematuria with clots, which was contributing to the retention, do you then advise like the three-way catheter and irrigation? And, and what do you normally sort of suggest we do there? Again, it's a very good question, but this one is a slightly bit more complicated because it would depend on what was the original reason or pathology for the hematuria in the first place. We would put in a freeway catheter if there was a source of ongoing bleeding okay. that we need to continuously flush out because the blood clot itself sitting on the prostate or in the bladder would drive further bleeding as it creates it actually causes the body to deliver thrombolytic agents to the clot mm -hmm. to try and dissolve it and therefore whatever clotting was needed to stop the bleeding it is a ongoing cycle so we need to remove that clot off from the surface of where it's bleeding so that it can actually vasospasm and stop bleeding okay. so that's the whole concept of a bladder washout. Right. And do you have any other sort of bits of advice for us in the emergency department sort of managing some of these urological um, presentations such as renal colic or urinary retention? So I think the most important thing about the renal colic would be to, to ensure that the patient doesn't have a fever 
or other signs or symptoms of an infection and to make sure that the patient doesn't have any other renal conditions that may predispose them for renal failure. It is very unlikely with a, a person with two normal healthy kidneys and renal colic on one side to go into acute renal failure. Thank you very much for your time, Dr. Huyen. That's very, very helpful. And yeah, we'll try and incorporate that into our local practice. All right. Thanks very much. It's a pleasure, Louise.